Well, Charles Spurgeon, after being at the London Tabernacle for several years, got up on a Sunday evening and said, I, I shall no longer confine myself to surface matters, but shall venture as God shall guide me to enter those things that lie at the basis of our religion. I shall not blush to preach before you the doctrine of God's sovereignty. I shall not stagger to preach from the doctrine of election. I shall not be afraid to advocate the great truth of the final perseverance of the saints, and I shall not withhold the effectual calling of God's elect. I shall endeavor to keep back nothing from you who have become my flock. Read that a couple of weeks ago, late in the night, and knew, man, I got to quote that at some point. And this morning, it seems like it's necessary. My sermon this morning will be on one of the scriptures that promotes the definite doctrine of redemption, where Jesus is said to give his life as a ransom for many. Now, what the Bible says about God redeeming his people is truly necessary for us to know. What God says about redeeming his people is not only necessary, but man, it brings us great joy to have him teach us and guide us of all that he says that he is. And the reason I wanted to preach on this uh, in this topical sermon series in the last several weeks is because redemption, God redeeming his bride, God redeeming his people actually affects the entire system of our belief. In an alarming way, if we get this wrong, we get everything else wrong. But in a really encouraging way, if we understand what God has said about himself and redemptive purposes, man, we can have confidence to go forward day after day, recognizing that we are not left up to chance. We are not here by accident. We are here because of the one who intentionally came for us. Now, when I say redemption, let me just start with kind of a summary of what the gospel is. The gospel is the good news that our holy God has not abandoned his people due to our sin, but sought out to rescue them for himself through the death of his son, Christ Jesus, the Son of God. Now, naturally, man and woman are separated from God, but the, the Father sent the Son, and the Father and Son sent the Holy Spirit to regenerate them, his people, to an understanding of not only their position of sin, but causing them to turn and repent from their sin to faith in Jesus as their Savior. And by this, we recognize, by God's good work, we have new life. Now, redemption, that, that word finds itself it, almost in the middle of the gospel. Redemption is the act of God to liberate his people from the bondage of their sin by Jesus' death on the cross and the resurrection from his death. This frees human beings to be free from bondage by Jesus atoning for that sin. Or to put it another way, Christ's death on the cross effectively, actually, infallibly deliver God's people from guilt and punishment from all their sins. Now, I do want to acknowledge that uh, there are Christians who differ on some theories of what you could say redemption is. If you look it up, there are going to be different theories on it. But all Christians believe that Christ died to redeem. All Christians believe that. This is what the Scriptures most basically tell us. Christ died to redeem. But Christians do differ on the extent of what is called that atonement or the extent of that accomplishment done for sinners. What did Christ achieve on the cross? It's possibly a question that you could ask yourself and seek to answer 
from the Word for the rest of your life because answering it is such an encouraging thing. What did Christ achieve on the cross? Did He achieve possible salvation for God's people, or did He achieve definite salvation? Was the cross as bloody and gory and awful as it was? Was it something that just removed barriers for you to know who Christ is? Or was it the work where Christ invaded our world and brings you to himself? Now to show my cards, I can't imagine going to bed tonight thinking that God and Christ merely made it possible for me to be saved. I can't go to bed tonight thinking that what God did in Christ merely made it possible for me to be saved, but that God in Christ accomplished saving grace on the cross. It's why we can go to bed and not feel terrified. It's why we can endure great suffering, recognizing that there was something done for us. In short, Christ did not die to make salvation possible. Now, if you just make that a sermon clip, that will make me look like a heretic, I recognize. Let me explain beyond the comma. Christ did not die to make salvation possible. He died to make forgiveness factual. In the sermon, in the book of Acts, chapter 16, verse 31, a sermon is preached, and at the end it said, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And that is true. And then it's true because of what Jesus did on the cross. It doesn't say believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you could be saved. It doesn't say you might be saved. It says you will be saved. A definite statement. Christ's accomplished atonement is definite. Now what the scriptures show and tell is that Christ, when he died, had an object in view. And that object will most definitely, beyond any doubt, be accomplished. Scripture holds that we are, and we are not afraid to say that Christ came into the world with the intention of saving, and it says in Scripture, saving a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, every tribe, every people, every language. All of the Father's people are sought and bought by the blood of the Lamb and the word of the Lord and brought to the throne by the power of the Spirit. The Trinitarian work of salvation is not haphazard, and it is not ineffective. Christ's death accomplished redemption for believers, meaning He delivered them from captivity and darkness into reconciliation. What I I want you to hear is that something actually eternally happened at the cross. Christ redeemed believers from the curse of the law and redeemed them from the guilt of and power of their own sin. So that's my intro. (laughs) So now my desire is to show you the greatness of redemption of Christ Jesus. I want to spend the rest of my time through four movements or four points to show you the greatness of this redemption that Christ accomplished on the cross. The first way that I want you to see this is if you're, you're peering into all that God has done for us in Christ, I want you to see first that the greatness of redemption comes from the reality of the heinousness or the awfulness of our own guilt. The greatness of redemption is shown to us because of the heinousness of guilt. If you were to measure the redeeming work of Christ by the measure of your own sins, if you believe that Christ has saved you from your sins, meaning that those are understandable objects, can you imagine measuring what those sins are, how those sins have impacted you and others? If you were to measure redeeming work of Christ by the measure of your own sins, you'd see it as no small thing. 
Think for a moment of a pit where you're brought out of, or a well from which Christ drew you. You would have been washed. You would have been cleansed. You would have been sanctified. All this is done by Christ. And I want you to grasp for a moment the former state of your soul, that well, that hole, that iniquity, that sinfulness, the sins that you indulged in, the rebellion against God that you made your own habit. And the Bible says that one sin can ruin a soul forever. And it is daunting to try to excavate the totality of depravity that you and I are in. An infinity of guilt couched in offense against the majesty of heaven. If then, as you might reflect on your initial position, you have, you have to then measure the value that could ever be supplied to wash away that sin. Great are your sins, and we recognize that redemption is great because of its power over all those sins you might line up. What would one act against your maker cost you? What would, what would it cost you to then atone for that one act or to pay for it? You, you line those up with everything you've done. What would it cost to atone for all of that, all of your thoughts, all of your actions? It's probably an impossible number. Thinking in terms of measuring sins, we might as well count the sand on a seashore or the trees in the forest or, if you like math, like calculus, Realize that might cause PTSD for some of you. This is where the limit doesn't exist. Probably more drops to fill up the ocean than we can account. It's an impossible number to add up the countless transgressions or to put a spiritual value of the weight of the crimes that we've committed. Now, now some go against what's called total depravity. I preached on it four weeks ago, I think, by saying that it slanders human nature and potential. We at our root are good people. I'm a good person. Yeah, that guy, he really messed up, but he's a good guy at his root, which is not what the Scriptures teach. The true Christian knows that if God had eternally given your heart to yourself, had He not drawn your heart to Himself, you would bear witness to its total depravity. The Scripture does use words to describe sin, but it also uses pictures because words sometimes fail to describe the deadliness of our evil, like a valley of dry bones or a person dead. Now, here's the point. How great then, friend, must be the ransom payment, must be the ransom exchange for you that was given to you in Christ. How great then when He saves us from all these sins. The the people for whom Christ died, however great their sins are, when they believe, the Scriptures say that they are justified. Or another way to put that is, they are declared by God Himself to be righteous from their sins from all their transgressions. Though they might have indulged in every vice and every lust which Satan could suggest and which human nature could perform, the Bible says by believing all their guilt is washed away. Year after year may have coated them with blackness, but in the moment of faith, one glorious moment of confidence in Christ, the great redemption takes away the guilt of all the years that's done by the cross. Christ Jesus' great redemption is absolutely sufficient to take away all sin, to wash every sinner, what's called in Scripture, whiter than snow. Now, I hope that you'll remember from Genesis, uh, when I preached that last fall and last summer, you remember from Genesis where a flood engulfed the entire earth? You think about Think about that. I mean, you think about what the flood was here in Enid when it really just overtook Enid, and then you think of the entire earth. 
where the waters covered not only the totality of the valleys, but also engulfed the heights of the mountains. Think of that. The Himalayas, the Rockies, underwater. My friend, picture that as a foretaste of what it means to your sins being covered by the death of Christ. But rest assured that as Noah's ark prevailed over the tops of earth's waters, so too is Christ the refuge and redemption who prevails over the tops of the mountains of all of your sins. Thomas Brooks has famously marked in his small treatise on Noah and the ark and Christ and redemption that Jesus is the ark for all of God's Noah's, the place where we go to in order for our sins to be overwhelmed by His grace and love. When once we see the deliverance of our heinous sin and their needs, we mark the measure of the grace of Christ that is given to us by the cross. Today's heaven is filled with former drunks, sexually enslaved people, angry hearts, lawless hands, blaspheming tongues, on and on, and once were some of you. Paul wrote, enjoy to the Corinthians, but they've been washed, he said, and they've been sanctified. They've been robed in someone else's majesty. So if you're here today with a troubled conscience, a weary soul, a groaning heart because you recognize the amount of your sin and you just hope that it's not actually piling up, I want you to recognize the greatness of redemption that is proclaimed to you from God in His all-sufficient Word. The reason why Jesus came was to make a ransom. There's an atonement made for all of your sin, a river of forgiveness that overflows all of them. So a right way to view Christ's redemption first is by the greatness of our guilt. But a second way to view the greatness of redemption is by the severity of justice. It's like a 10th like grade word, severity of justice. We see and we sing about and we talk about how God is love, but we also must recognize from the Scriptures that God is also severely just. He is not flexible in His severity when He deals with sin. He doesn't turn a blind eye. The God of the Bible is not the God of some men's imagination who thinks that there is such little amount and measure of sin that He will overlook it for a right punishment. He's not some kind of God, as people imagine, who sees sin as small or insignificant. No, the God of the Bible entirely has said of Himself that He is a jealous God. He wants all of it, and He hates all sin, and He won't deal with it. He says that He won't, by any measure, clear guiltiness. Friend, to, to know the God of the Bible is to know His severity and justice, but, and, his love does not diminish his justice, nor does his justice in the least degree make war against his love. We see these, these things go together, and they're beautiful and awesome because of his glorious power. The two things are so beautifully connected together in the atonement of Christ. And so we can never understand the fullness of God's atonement until we first seize what the Scripture's truth says about his amazing love and his immense justice. There was never an ill-spoken word nor an ill-thought conceived. There was never an evil deed done by him, and there will never be an ill-spoken word or ill-thought conceived or evil done for which God will not have punishment in some form or another. Everything will be justly brought under punishment. 
He'll either have satisfaction from you or he'll have satisfaction from Christ. And hauntingly, as one late pastor says, if you have no atonement to bring through Christ, you must forever lie paying the debt which you never can pay in eternal misery. For as surely as God is God, he will sooner lose his Godhead than suffer one sin to go unpunished or one particle of rebellion to go unrevenged. Now, this appears possibly to you as really cold, really stern, uh, really severe, maybe too much severe. Maybe you don't know anyone like this. I mean, after all, how many of us have not talked our fifth grade teacher out of putting us, you know, in timeout and recess or something like that? You know, I myself, I always got in trouble in grade school because I was just louder than everyone else. And once I showed them how loud I was to everyone else, they had a little bit more mercy on me, right? He just has amazing vocal cords. But we have to realize that though we might look at God as cold and stern and severe, this is the truth about God of the Bible, where love and mercy meet, severity and judgment. You can have grace and love. You cannot have grace and love without His justice and judgment. And here's the point of this foundation of this simplicity of his glory. I want you to consider the greatness of the substitution of Christ and what that was for sin on the cross. Where on the cross, Christ satisfied God's justice for all of the sins of his people while pouring out all of his love for his people. My friends, can you think what must have been the greatness of the atonement in that morning? where redemption is shown as the penal substitution of the all agony on Christ, which God would have cast on us. Redemption is the showcase of what should have been poured out on us, but was poured out on Christ in our place. I want you to grasp the thought of the greatness of the Savior's mediation when He paid your debt. The debt that you saw on the first point, all that debt stacked up, but think of the greatness of the Savior's mediation when he paid that debt, Christian, and paid it at full to the point where there was no more remaining debt owed by you. There's no more sin to be punished, no more wrath to be consumed from Christ's people because their God brought that debt and punishment and wrath on himself. It is unbelievable to recognize not just all that our guilt brought, but all that justice was poured out on undeserving people like ourselves. In, the, in, John, or in 1 John chapter 4, verse 10, it says, and this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He has loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. The propitiation means that He has, he has consumed and absorbed all of God's wrath for us, and that's why He was sent, and He actually did it. It was actually done there at that cross because it's at the cross where love and justice meet. Love to you by justice being carried out on him. A third thing I want you to see uh, when it comes to the greatness of redemption is the price that he had to pay. So we talked about guilt, talked about justice, but then the price that he had to pay. Think about the price of redemption. Think about what it cost on him. It is impossible for us to know how great the pains of our Savior was, but some glimpse of this will afford us little idea 
of the grace that was poured out on Christ here on the cross. You can see this throughout all of the Gospels. Their portrayal of who Jesus was on his death, in his death, for the sake of sinners. In fact, it's at the end of every gospel. It's amazing all, that, all the, the, the ink's fountain that has been poured out on these pages at the ends of the gospel make up a major bulk of this man's life for us to be known by. If you're going to write a biography on someone's life or maybe even try an autobiography on yours, I doubt your last week would consume a major portion of that work. You'd probably spend a lot of time on where you were born or how you really became you or what childhood was like or the spouse that you married or the trials that you endured. But then at the end of it, you just, you died. The work of Jesus is even more opposite of that to us. There are glimpses that we are afforded of this greatness by the price of which Jesus paid toward the end of his life. Jesus was a sufferer from his birth, a man of sorrows and griefs acquaintance. And these sufferings fell on him in one perpetual deluge after another until the last hour of darkness on Calvary, but then not in a shower, but in a cloud or in a rush, a force of grief where our agonies were finally placed on him. Did any man ever wrestle like he wrestled? Did any man ever suffer like he suffered? We certainly see that people suffer all the time. People have been brutally killed. People have been brutally brought to a point of death. People have been dragged through streets on and on. But you have to understand that not only was he suffering in the cruelest sense, in the most amazingly physically awful way, but you also have to take a step back and recognize who was the one who was being tormented, but the king of the world. I would imagine it would be hard, hard for any of us to watch a documentary on the late Queen of England being dragged through the streets, a thorn thrown on her head. After all, she was a nice lady, right? She seemed to love the Lord, and she seemed to not bother many people. Why are they, why are they killing her like that? Go and look at the depictions of Jesus in the gospel. Was ever such suffering depicted upon mortal countenance? than you can imagine. Hear his own words. My soul is very sorrowful even to death. When he rose in the garden before he was cast away, he was seized by traitors and dragged away. See this as the price. And what do we see at this point? It's there in that place when he's been taken that is so shocking. It's hard for us to even imagine, but Luke records it for us in Luke 22 verse 44 where it says that he was in such an agony as he prayed more earnestly that sweat became like drops of blood falling down from to the ground. Friend, remember who you were in your sin which caused this toil upon the Savior's hallowed body and soul. It was your sins which forced a bloody sweat to fall from his entire body. This was the beginning, though. This is the opening of the tragedy where we follow him mournfully to witness the attainment of it. He is then rushed through the streets. He is dragged first to one bar, then to another. He is cast and condemned by, or cast and condemned by the Sanhedrin, and he is mocked by Herod. He is tried by Pilate, and he's sentenced to death by people shouting, and calling for his crucifixion. And now the tragedy seems to come to his climax. His back is uncovered as he's tied to a Roman column. And then a bloody plague plows grooves into his back where 
red blood screams out, a stream of blood, where his back is now red, where they've robbed him of his livelihood and now mockingly robed him with a crimson robe, one that shows his kingdom of misery, not a kingdom of majesty like he said he was. They spit on his face. They interlaced a mocking crown together and jammed it into his skull. This was not one of jewels, but one of thorns on his head and pressed it into his temples. And they arrayed him with a purple robe so that they can mock him as this, quote, king of the Jews, unquote. And it's there silently that he would sit and be taken. He answers not a word. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 23 says that when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly, it says in the Scriptures. He was committed to, as our sermons text says, not to come to be served, but to serve. He did all this knowing that he was giving his life over as an actual ransom not as a possibility. And so they took him. They hurried him through the streets again, this withered body of continual fastings and depressed with an agony of spirit. It's there that he would stumble beneath the cross where he would stumble into the streets. And so they lifted him up as not to be deterred by what they wanted of him, but they put a cross upon someone else's shoulders and they pushed him forward until at last he reaches a mount of doom and their soldiers would seize him and hurl him on his back. You can imagine the slanting wood is placed beneath him where his arms are stretched to reach the measure of their terror, where nails would be gathered by men and hammers would be lifted up into the sky to drive those nails through the kindness, kindest parts of his body, the hands that he had just broken bread with, and past the cup and through feet that had amazingly brought him to them. And so there he lies in a place of execution. There the cross would be lifted up by shoulders from the back. And there they would be placed in the opening of the earth prepared for him. And there the cross would be dropped thunderously into a hole where it would stand and where he would be hanged. Friend, I want you to imagine the Savior's limbs at this point. His body bleeding. His heart slumping. His throat caving. His cries loudly, my God, why have you forsaken me? The brightness of the sky would stop. Rocks on the earth would split. This is the man of sorrows. This is just what you can see. Now imagine what you cannot. The inward pain on him would be far worse. What our Savior suffered in his body was nothing compared to to what he would endure in his soul. The sorrow, remember, our text was for many, not just one. It'd be amazing if someone paid this kind of price for another man's soul, but according to our text, this was for many. Revelations would say this was for a myriad of myriads, meaning it's such a high number that you can't count it. Imagine what you cannot see. This is what he was enduring. Can you think of the vast, amassed misery there that, that would have been, where Christ had to suffer an equivalent for all of the hells of all of the redeemed. The whip would have had your name. The blood would have screamed your agony. 
As one poet writes, at one drink of love, he drank damnation dry. He gave God the sanctification or the satisfaction for all the sins of all his people in that very moment. So no, when it comes to the atonement, it was not a possibility for man to be saved. It was at this moment like a thunder in the ground when the cross was lifted up that man can be forgiven. A fourth and finally, when we think of the greatness of redemption, we have to look at the vastness of its accomplishment. The vastness, fourth and finally, the vastness of its accomplishment. So come to come to the last point, which is the, I think, sweetest of them all. Uh, Jesus Christ, we are told, and our text came into the world to give his life as a ransom for many. The greatness of Christ's redemption may be measured by the extent of its design. That's a theological sentence there. The greatness of Christ's redemption may be measured by the extent, boundaries of its design. He gave his life as a ransom for many, for a lot of people, people we cannot even begin to count. So let me go back to the controversy at the beginning. For whom did Christ die? Now those who hold to the doctrine uh, to the doctrinal explanation of Christ died for the elect, meaning not every single human being who has ever walked on the earth. The, these who hold to that are often described as limiting or restricting the atonement of Christ, limiting His grace, because they see Scripture explaining and teaching that Christ has not made a satisfaction for all men, or all men would be saved. So as I've said before, no part of Jesus' death was in vain, but it was an actual event. You think of in the, in the scope of redemptive history. Now, I firmly believe that every person who Christ died for will be saved because I believe the Scripture is clear that Jesus' death on the cross was a substitutionary deliverance, not a hopeful opportunity. I also think when you put this in the context of who the Trinity is, it, it is the Father in His will to save people. It is the Son in His will to come and to be a substitution for those people, all of whom John 17 says, all of whom the Father has given Him. And then it will be the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, who comes miraculously into people's lives and changes them from the inside out to where they can call on the one who died on the cross. And to say that, that there are people who the Spirit just couldn't get to in time would be a great breakdown of the Trinity. Or that he just didn't have enough in him to really drag you to the cross would also be a great breakdown in the Trinity. So I think it's clear in Scripture of who God is. He is the one who seeks and saves his holy bride. So no, Christ's atonement is not limited in its power and in its glory. It is effective for, as Jesus says in, Psalm, as Jesus says in John 17, his death was for all whom the Father had given him. But my friends, redemption, which belongs to the Lord, is an act of grace. It's an act of love. It's not a contract that you sign up for. It's an act not of begging, but one of summoning. You see in the book of John where there was a man who was dead. Not kind of dead, not almost dead, but we saw Lazarus as completely dead. Lazarus was so dead that he was rotting. It was disgusting. Everyone would have looked at that and said, someone bury him. And what did Jesus do at that moment? Not what did Lazarus do at that moment. What did Jesus do at that moment? He said, Lazarus, wake up. This is redemption applied 
in our own lives because it was accomplished in the life and in the death of Christ. The Bible is clear that the cross of Christ accomplished salvation for dead men. It's a supernatural, not contractual thing. All of your life is saying no until the Spirit changes your affections and speaks. Come to the cross where grace and mercy meet. I hope you'll think of this also in a Trinitarian way. Like I said, that before all time, we see the God the Father electing to save people from every nation, language, and tongue. What a beautiful way to say many or a lot. That in the fullness of time, God the Son came in the world taking to himself flesh so that he, truly God and truly man, could be the perfect substitute to effectively, judiciously, impunitively save sinners. And then the Spirit was sent by the Father and the Son to regenerate all who were given to the Son by the Father. The Spirit is fully capable and powerful enough to save all, all whom God has decided. None of the Father's men are left on the battlefield of good and evil. No one is left behind. It's amazing to see the vastness of redemption played out. Now, why did Jesus die? Well, we understand that to make a ransom to deliver dead men. Why did Jesus go to the cross? Why did he emerge from the grave to save sinners? But friend, I often think that's the wrong question that we ask maybe other people or ourselves. My my friend, I recognize that I'm putting all my theological cards on the table by saying this, (laughs) but what I am begging you to see is the point that Christ's death on the cross infallibly secured the salvation of many. More than man can number, more than even man can see, it is so glorious because he actually did it. When John in the book of Revelation is given a vision, he actually doesn't see how many people are there. He hears a number. It's amazing the shift in this book and this part of Revelation. He hears a number, 144,000, which by the way, just symbolically, that means like a whole lot of people. That'd be like us saying billions and billions Right? But then he looks and he's given a glimpse. And the only thing that he writes to us, the only thing he writes down for us to understand is there were myriads and myriads, people that I couldn't even count. That's whom Christ in his love came for. When he's given a small glimpse of the many of God's grace, he pins down the words myriads and myriads who through Christ's death not only may be saved, but are saved. Now, there are like 20 things to discuss in all of this, and I do not want to spend my time doing it. Feel free to email me, talk to me afterwards, come up to me, track me down during the week. You all have my number in the bulletin. There is a lot to, as, as Berean work would happen, go battle royale with Bible words. And, you and I want you and I to do that. It's really cold, so we can't have a campfire, but let's, let's get together and talk about it. But what I do want to end with is a question That question is, if I ask, who did Christ die for, what would be your answer? Who who did Christ die for? My hope for you, my 287 people, members, my hope is that your answer is in the first person singular, me. Christ died for me. And you can be confident in that me. You might be scared of that me, but you can be confident in that me through scriptural language. If you know that you need a Savior because of your conscious awareness of sin, you can be confident in that me. You can be confident in that me if the Holy Spirit taught you that you are lost 
And Christ is whom you can trust to be the Lord of your life. If you know your need, you ascend to Christ and knowing and bestowing or understanding his glory, his purpose, and his power, and then trusting in him alone to save you. You've heard me use that acronym before, CAT with a K, know who Christ is, ascend to who Christ is, and then trust in what he has done. Trust him alone to save you. Then Christ Jesus, my friend, died for you, and you will be saved. Not might be, not hopefully will be, but if you know the Lord and why you do not deserve him, and you know what he has done for sinners like you, then you can trust in him. This morning, if you know your guilt, your wretchedness, you're aware of the punishment you deserve and are ready to take Christ to be your only Savior, to, to ascend to Him, to believe in Him, to surrender to Him, I can not only say to you that you may be saved, but what is better still, that you will be saved. I dare you, Christian, to ask a Christian friend, a Christian spouse, a Christian whoever, whoever you might have come to church with or might live with, did Christ die for me? Ooh, that's, a, that's a more interesting question. You might ask that of yourself, but what if you ask the love of your life? Did Christ die for me? What might she say? The only answer that we can give is from the truth of what's given to us in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. May we all find rest in the accomplished work of Christ. May we go to bed tonight and wake up tomorrow, recognizing that we are not on the wrong side of the river, but that we have been brought through on dry land to be on dry land because he delivered us over. To the King of kings of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Because he meant to. Let's pray. Our gracious and heavenly Father, we thank you that it is you who we can declare worthy of all honor and glory and might. We pray that we would have lives that respond to your accomplished work on the cross for us. We pray that we would have lives that respond to your goodness to us, to where we will never be satisfied until we are done with people to go to with that same love. God, we ask that you would continue to teach us and guide us, but we are thankful that you have. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.